Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today, my guest is Liz Cosson, the Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs. DVA is the Australian Government Department that delivers income support, compensation and other support services to war veterans, serving and former serving members of the ADF, the Australian Federal Police and their families. Liz Cosson served in the Australian Army for over 30 years, becoming the Army's first female Major General back in 2007. She began her career in the Australian Public Service in the Department of Veterans Affairs in 2010, before spending time in the Department of Immigration and Citizenship and the Department of Health, before returning to the role of Chief Operating Officer and Deputy Secretary at DVA. She was appointed Secretary of DVA in May of 2018. Liz Cosson, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thank you. Your career has been a life of public service. And I knew I know that you did grow up in a, a military family, but did you always have your heart set on the public service and the military as a career? I certainly had my heart set on joining the army. That was always something when I was growing up that I said to my parents, I want to be a soldier. And uh, so Age what? Oh, I was probably about 16 because okay. uh, mum and dad were posted to Papua New Guinea and I went into boarding school and I realised that I missed them so much. It's um, a, a time when you, as a child or as a teenager, you think, actually, my parents are okay. And, uh, and I, I reflected on the life that we had moving around and having the opportunity to visit mum and dad in uh, Papua New Guinea And I thought, I really do um, want to follow in my dad's footsteps. Uh, He didn't want me to join. Uh, He and mum thought that was not going to be a good career for a girl. And uh, so dad asked me to do some secretarial training to start with. So I went to a business college and then worked in real estate here in Canberra for two years before applying for the army. Yeah, I noticed that gap in your career before you moved into the army. So were you a good real estate agent? Well, I was a secretary. Oh, so secretary. I, I, I talk about the fact I'm bookending my career um, <laughs> as a secretary and uh, I worked for Hodgkinson Real Estate okay. and I sat on the front desk and did his books and uh, took phone calls, etc. and uh, then um, joined the Army two years after working in that uh, real estate field. I just knew that wasn't for me. I, I wanted to, to be a soldier. So. And so uh, looking back on that, um, that time, that being inspired by your family mm. and your father in particular, about that life. What was it? You know, I know you admired him, obviously, Mm. but what was it about the life and that commitment to service that appealed to you? Well, we've got a long history of of serving our nation in my family, both on my mother's side and my dad's side. Um, And I always remembered the stories of my mother's father who served in the First World War when he was 18 years of age. And he left the little country town of Victoria, um, left his nine siblings behind and and uh, marched out of that little town and said, I want to go over to, over to Europe. 
And uh, he was um, disowned by the family uh, because they, they thought he should be on the land um, and supporting his siblings. But when uh, Pop returned, uh, minus two and a half fingers, after serving in the First World War, he set up a little post office in this country town. And I always remembered hearing him talk about that. And, uh, and I loved him, of course, to bits. And my dad used to talk about his father who served in the Second World War and his grandfather who was killed in action in the First World War. And just that whole sense of, of service, um, I grew up with it and uh, it did make me feel very proud uh, to be Australian. And then when uh, Dad was posted anywhere, my brother and I, we changed schools many times. Uh, we went to... My brother was born in Malaysia and uh, we also went over to America and we lived over there during a pretty torrid time and I'm watching the elections now in uh, the US and uh, when we were there, it was the time when Robert Kennedy was assassinated and Martin Luther King was assassinated and there were riots in the streets in Washington and... I just remembered the experience growing up with a, a military father and having that opportunity to experience other cultures and other nations and then just to feel that family um, that he felt for the others that served with him but also the family that came together uh, whenever you did move. It was just a, a wonderful childhood for me and something I knew I wanted to, to live as an adult. Just when you, you think back to those those moments with your grandfather and his two mm. and a half fingers, did he mm. tell stories about his two and a half fingers or did he yeah. make stories up? He probably made them up, <laughs> but um, he did say that uh, they were shot on the battlefield in France. Shot off. And, yeah, shot off okay. on the battlefields in France. Unfortunately, it was the middle of winter, he told me, so he put his hand into the snow to help the, the you know to the healing process as far as he was to stop the, the, the bleeding and uh, then the medics came and he was very proud um, because he used to roll his own cigarettes and he'd do it with the stumps of his fingers and uh, I can still see him sitting there talking about that. So, yeah. So that time, you know, 30 years in the Army is, mm. is, is a long time. What did, you, what did you take from that as a, as a professional now that you have a, a different job as a, as a senior administrator of a very important government department? Mm. So my military service... Um, were 30, over 30 years, as you, you pointed out, and I learnt a lot, uh, particularly about myself during that service. Um, I often um, tell people that you learn a lot of military discipline during your, your military career, but you learn a lot of self-discipline as well. And you help um, understand who you are as an individual. Um, and so... I certainly learnt who I was and the importance of being authentic because, as you'd appreciate, joining back in 1979, it was at the end of a decade where we uh, finally had equal pay for equal work for women. And uh, I initially thought I had to be like my male colleagues and uh, I identified quickly that uh, I couldn't be someone I wasn't. So that authenticity and I learnt about values um, the military lives by its values and they are very important and held very dear to them. But they also teach you a lot about leadership and uh, the importance of leadership. It's, and I was just speaking to a group of young leaders the other day and uh, they asked me, do you have to lead differently from when you're in uniform to now as a public service servant? I said, Good well, question. I know. <laughs> and I said, well, I look at it that... 
Um, you either command in the military and there are times when you are required to command because you may be putting people's lives at risk yep. and um, sending them into harm's way. So you may need to command and I've been in um, experiences where I've had to use my command style. Um, I've also had to manage, uh, manage resources and people, but leadership is something where you inspire um, and you want people to come with you. So setting that clear vision and direction so that um, people will follow and you will deliver the outcomes that you're hoping to deliver. So my leadership style in the military and my public service leadership style, exactly the same. But is it is it harder outside of the APS because you don't have those structures and disciplines and ranks and other things where it's, you know reasonably codified in, in the Defence Force, because it necessarily has to be, mm. with the APS not so much? Well, the, the difference for me when um, I was no longer in uniform is you can't see the level you're at in the public service. So okay. I could walk into a room in the military yeah. uh, wearing my uniform, wearing my rank, and people would immediately know where I sat in the hierarchy. Um, my first few meetings in the public service in a suit... Um, that's it's not obvious. So it really does reinforce the importance of um, owning your space and knowing who you are and approaching your role with some credibility and confidence um, so that people then can identify who you are. But it is surprising there's still a lot of unconscious bias out there where people don't necessarily recognise a female as the leader when she might be standing with a strong male. Um, so I have seen still to this day a little bit of that, David. How does that get solved, that, that point of unconscious bias? Because I can, I can hear the, all the females in the audience have all gone, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, happens every day. It, it can happen and not as often as I used to see it, but um, I normally just speak um, introduce who I am, introduce <laughs> myself, and I don't want the person to feel uncomfortable. But they become quite; they be, it becomes quite evident to them who I am, and uh, you can see they're uncomfortable because it was unconscious. Yeah, I actually didn't mean to be insulting. Um, so, yeah, you just be confident in yourself and know that sometimes that's going to happen. Now, I'm I'm intrigued. You were awarded the Conspicuous Service Cross for your work in supporting the. Um, the Bougainville operations, and you were also heavily involved in the late 90s in East Timor. What did that experience teach you in that it was a genuine conflict, that there were you know, lives at risk, genuinely at risk, and you were heavily involved? So um, the, firstly with uh, East Timor, um, I didn't deploy to East Timor, mm. but what I my role was... Um, in our land command, as we called yeah. it then, now forces command, where we were responsible for doing all the planning for the logistics yeah. uh, for the forces that were about to put the boots exactly. on the ground. Yeah. And it was extremely challenging but extremely rewarding. And what I've recognised that in any time of need, um, we just all come together as a team, and I found this during COVID as yeah. well, we are so resilient uh, as people and you see there is a need here. We need all hands on deck. We need clever thinking and we need innovation to find out how we're going to do it because it was a time when we really didn't have the computer systems and the IT and the data that we have today. So a lot of it was um, manual, tedious work to, to pull all of that logistics planning together. Um, 
But my goodness me, it was so rewarding when we knew that we were able to support the forces that were about to go into East Timor. But the and risks it, were high, weren't they? Risks you, were high. You had to get it right. Absolutely. And we had to make sure that the supply chains were in place uh, for the mm. troops uh, when they were on the ground. And it was just through um, a real team effort of a number of different organisations coming together to make that work. Um, and we, we were successful, as, as we know. But you talk about that high performance. Why is it that it takes a crisis? Because I think that's one of the great themes of Work With Purpose is that the APS has performed outstandingly well yep. in a crisis. The Army, in those two instances, again, it mm-hmm. was crisis that led to that high performance. Why... Why is that the case? Well, it's interesting. Um, there could be many reasons for it. But one of the things um, I know that we've been in the department going through transformation for the last four years, and when you have a shared purpose, and what is it that you're driving, what's the vision, where are you heading, what is that purpose, you can actually achieve incredible outcomes because you've all, you all share it. And it was NASA back in the 60s yep. had a look at how they were successful putting a man on the moon. And um, it was recognised in uh, that review that everyone from the janitor to the receptionist to the engineer to the astronaut all shared that one purpose, put a man on the moon. And we talk about this a lot in the department. What are we here for? And when you know why you're here, you can achieve incredible outcomes. And that's we knew for East Timor that our purpose was to make sure when those boots hit the ground, they had all the equipment they needed and that we could resupply them. And having that shared purpose, that shared vision, um, was really important to, to this successful outcome. But I would argue that a lot of that shared purpose and, and mission and understanding is still there, but perhaps when there's not the crisis, we're not performing as to a higher standard as we need to. So once you get the vision clear and we know where we're heading, you know, the North Star, what's your style about trying to get that message out and then get the performance out? Because I imagine through COVID as well, you would have had to have, again, clearly articulated to your people, this is the role that we are playing in this particular crisis. Um, When I reflect on how when um, the the pandemic um, was announced and we activated our pandemic uh, continuity plan, what I saw in in our department was this willingness uh, to come together and to not only support Services Australia when they recognised other Australian citizens needed their support, but they also um, came together to say, well, how are we going to do this? I mean, the initial initial response was, how are we going to continue to serve our veterans and their families and uh, come up with new ways of doing that? And so I won't go through all the mechanics that we put in place, but that was a lot to do with our success. But then to directly answer your question, David, how... um, you communicate with your staff. And what we did and saw is the whole foundation to delivering outcomes for veterans was communication. And we found different ways to communicate, but we regularly communicated. And I started to do my own personal um, iPhone videos to send to staff. Um, We got um, messages through our staff reference group who are our staff on the ground who were able to communicate. So you can't communicate enough Mm. when you're um, dealing with um, the challenges we did with um, the pandemic with COVID-19 and to talk to staff about the difference they're making uh, because it, 
you are motivated when you know you're making a difference and the work that you're putting in is actually achieving your purpose. And when I was able to talk to them about, we now know where all our veterans are by postcode and when the nine towers in Victoria went into lockdown very quickly, we knew every single veteran in those towers because of the work we'd done, the mechanics that we'd put in place, to then be able to ring them or SMS them and then to say to our staff, this is what you did. There was a 90-year-old veteran in those towers who he said to the staff member who rang him, I get meals on wheels. Are they going to be able to come and give me my dinner? And the staff member was able to talk to the department down there and say, how are we going to get the veteran his meals on wheels? And I said to the staff member who was just so touched by this story, and I said, you made a difference for that veteran. Mm. And little stories like that, and we, we so it's not just numbers um, where you've delivered 225,000 stimulus mm. packages to, to veterans, but it's the individual stories and that staff can relate, but we also did shout outs to staff um, where a veteran would write to us and tell us how um, Abby from the phone call made made yep. him feel special and we, we were able to let Abby know that. Um, so all of that, the communications, the positive stories, the positive reinforcements about you've purpose but you've made a difference as well through all of this. It's interesting you, you put your finger on communication because we were talking with Sue Weston the other day yes. and I did say to her, you know, what's, what have you learnt out of COVID? What has it taught you? And she said it... Um, interestingly, it was that communications, that, that the importance and the, and the critical nature of that useful, relevant, consistent, that you Absolutely. are continually going there. What have you learned? What did you learn through COVID that you mightn't have? Even though you've had such a distinguished career, you've had so many other things go on, you've, you know, you've learned a lot, but what did COVID teach you? So not only communications, that was certainly a key lesson for all of us, but I learned how... Um, a difference in uh, applying flexibility to the way you work. Uh, before COVID, there are a few managers, I'd suggest, would think, well, unless I can see you, yeah. you're not working. Yeah. And we were able to equip um, probably about 90% of our 3,000 staff across Australia with technology so that they could work remotely. And um, by March, we had about 80% of our staff working remotely. And that was really important um, because of the environment that we're in, because we also cease face-to-face services for our veteran community. They didn't like that initially, but they recognised it was for their own well-being that uh, we weren't expecting them to come into our offices. But we also um, conducted four staff surveys during the, the COVID period. And uh, what we picked up from that was this self-reporting of um, feeling trusted yeah. feeling empowered and feeling the flexibility to do their work, um, never losing sight of why they were working for the veterans and families and they felt happier. And you, and I don't know, I don't know, you can't measure happiness but you can feel happiness and I could feel it through the staff surveys that they appreciated all of that, the flexibility, the trust and the empowerment to do their work. They also self-reported productivity but we've got real facts on productivity as well. Um, and I learned from that, you don't have to f- see somebody mm-hmm. to know they're working. 
But I also uh, know that there are different ways that you can engage staff, which for me, um, I used to go around to the different offices and talk to staff and I'd ask at the end of my presentations, are there any questions? Maybe three hands, two or three questions. But um, we trialled a broadcast where I would broadcast through Teams and I reached over 1,300 of our staff in one broadcast Mm. and the questions didn't stop because they were online sending their questions and um, my facilitator was able to theme them and say, we've got a lot of questions on this list and um, consistency in that messaging through that great reach I don't want to lose what are the, the goodness that came out of all of this. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my next question. Yeah. How do you bottle this mm-hmm. in order to continue to perform at a high level to deliver for the veterans and the AFP and ex service and all the rest of it and their families? How do you how do you bottle that? Because I know that's the that's the that's the the question in the minds of most every member of the uh, SES in the APS. Yeah. So how um, – I, I don't want to rush to anything and we've just finalised our report on some of the key lessons and it's quite a hefty okay. uh, report but uh, it really does capture everything we did in the department and it was only today I was asking um, the team to just do a couple of other pieces of work with it so I can share it with the Secretary's board because I think there are some really incredible yeah. lessons from that for all of us as as leaders on, on how you bottle the goodness mm. um, and because we know there are some weaknesses with it. And, for example, I looked at our EAP statistics to see what was being reported now in comparison to 2019 and 2020. Uh, mental health issues are yeah. still the top uh, reporting issue for our department. But during COVID, as COVID was the second issue, but domestic violence was the third. Yeah. Um, whereas in 2019, it was mental health and it was bullying and harassment and workplace change. Okay. Um, workplace change doesn't even rate a mention in 2020 uh, because we've all changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've all had to adapt to the change. And, and I feel that it is just really important to continue to talk to staff about what they felt and importantly for us to know what are the outcomes that we still need to deliver and how we can do that and measure it uh, because productivity can be self-reported but when I can see it, that's good and and I want to continue with the productivity. But we've put a lot of effort into cultural change and that's hard when you're working remotely. So we still need to get balance um, and talking to the staff um, through my staff reference group, saying I want to find the balance. So if you've only worked at home during COVID, I want you to come back into the office for a couple of days. You need to have the balance now um, and that will be really important. But I'm not rushing. I think that would be my key message, David. Don't rush it. Um, get some balance in it and keep some flexibility. Um, but keep measuring and keep engaging. So you made quite an interesting comment, I think it was in the middle of last year, where you said, look, if I can't fix this, I'm, I'm out of here, I'll, I'll leave. You're still here, so clearly you feel that you're on the path and we've had this, you know, COVID intervention really in, in the middle of this period where you're obviously trying to get that transformation that you alluded to early to, to land it. What was the problem that you were trying to solve that you thought that you had to fix or otherwise you were going to leave? And where does that position you now or the COVID position you now in order to achieve what obviously you've been setting out to achieve? 
So for the last few years, um, we have been transforming, be transforming because we have heard from our veteran community that we needed to change. Uh, the view being that uh, we didn't, um, didn't know them, that we didn't understand the nature of service. Uh, we weren't connecting them to the right support. We weren't respecting their service. And we've put in incredible effort through our veteran-centric reform, uh, engaging with our veteran community and talking to them and listening and learning from that. And uh, 12 months ago, or beginning of last year, 2019, uh, there was a lot of uh, media and uh, calls for a Royal Commission, particularly into veteran suicide. Yep. And um, I expressed my commitment to veteran community. I see that our role in the Department of Veterans Affairs is an extension of your military service. And I see my role as the Secretary is an extension of my military service. I'm here to support those who have served our nation, uh, given that our Australian Defence Force is a volunteer force. Um, we need, as a department, to recognise that service and the sacrifice that many uh, give to our country. And um, there had been a huge divide between defence and DVA, and that's now closed. Um, and, uh, and I listened with interest to your interview with uh, the CDF and uh, Greg Moriarty, and uh, the three of us are so closely aligned on why we are here uh, to support current serving members and particularly when they leave. Now, the majority of people leave well, leave the military service well, but there are a few that have had a, a torrid time um, and they find it really difficult to make that transition to civilian life. So I knew 12 months ago that we still had a, some work to do. And my uh, commitment was that if I feel I'm part of the problem, I will leave. Um, I would hate to think I am contributing to a problem when I am so committed to the service to our um, Australian Defence Force and families. And so when I was interviewed again just recently um, um, to say, well, are you leaving? No, I'm not leaving because <laughs> I can actually point to significant change that we've made um, and I am always the first to acknowledge we've got more to do and I want to do that with the veteran community um, and with the uh, announcement of a national commissioner into defence and veteran suicide prevention, I want to work closely with the uh, national commissioner. Um, Dr Boss is independent but within the Attorney-General's because I want to find solutions. Um, I can read stories about what we're doing wrong but I really want to hear solutions on how we can um, get it right. Mm. Um, I certainly don't accept the suicide rate. It's not acceptable and we need to be doing more uh, for our veteran community. And uh, I'm engaging now with some of those um, young um, men who, who may be impacted by the Inspector General of the ADF Afghanistan inquiry to say, we will set up a, a team that will be dedicated to you if you need us to support you, we are there for you. Um, and to give them hope that we as a department do care because all the negative media is actually saying, don't go to them, they don't care when we actually uh, have over $11 billion funding to support our veteran community. And I really want to get that message out, David. So I'm not going anywhere at this stage. Good. And how are you feeling anyway at the end of what has been, uh, you know, an incredible year? You know, the challenges of, of the bushfire, the activation of uh, the Defence Force, the reserves in that, um, 
period of time and then the COVID period. Are you, how are you holding up? Because these jobs are big jobs that the, secretaries of departments have. So yeah. yeah, you feeling okay? I'm feeling okay, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm feeling okay. So yeah. I've, I've had the, the great support of um, my wonderful husband and friends and family and uh, also my department. I mean, I've got some wonderful leaders in the department. Um, I've taken a bit of leave here and there, just to have a few days to myself. Have um, you found that important? That you That you get that break yep. away from? Because yep. they... They're brutal sort of jobs, aren't they? You know, like the, you, you do, can't really go and turn the phone off. Because you, you do need to look after yourself um, mm. and I do that through exercise, uh, yep. through gym. I've certainly kept that up. But uh, it's interesting looking at some of the staff surveys where they said that there was that um, blurring between home and work and uh, we saw leave rates drop but we saw unscheduled absences drop as well. But I've said to the whole department and I'm taking my own advice, take leave and don't pick up the phone, don't log on to the computer, I found knitting again. Um, I found baking again. Not so well, my husband would say, but you have to reconnect with you time. Um, yeah. And uh, I feel good. Oh, I'm looking forward to the end of the yeah. year for a break, absolutely, like everyone is. Um, but I feel okay. But how do you get ready then for next year? You know, there's the big opportunity. You obviously have a huge slate of work in front of you and obviously some of those contextual challenges will come again. But again, probably to maybe offer an observation is about the wider APS. How does it now take the, you know, the 30 reforms that are there and locked and loaded and ready to go? And how do we sort of come out of 2020 going into 2021? Well, there's still... You know, look what's going on overseas. There's still not a lot of certainty in lots of things. We don't know what the world economy is going to do. We don't know a lot of things. What's your sort of wider view and your advice to um, to people as they get ready for not only a break, but they get ready to come back next year? Mm. So we have our executive leadership group coming together in a couple of weeks where we're doing scenario planning. What could we be facing next year? Yeah. Uh, we certainly weren't ready for what we faced in 2020, but look at what we did. Look what we achieved. Uh, what a foundation to build on. Um, and uh, we've pulled together some scenarios on what we might um, face next year just so that we're ready for that. We've dusted off again the business continuity plan because we also know we're heading into cyclone season and bus bushfire season. Are we ready for those? Um, you need to continue just to refresh and um, understand what are the lessons that we've learned but think ahead on what those challenges might be. And it still might be a challenge you didn't expect, but at least you've been thinking about how you'd respond and don't lose what we've learned from this year. We've been incredibly innovative um, and agile. <laughs> I don't like using that word, <laughs> but we have been able to adapt uh, to yeah. how we've delivered. And I just want to make sure that we recap on that and say, okay, that's our foundation. Now, how are we going to build on that uh, to face anything that happens next year. So what will you, you do have that sort of individual responsibility there in DVA, but you are a member of the Secretary's Board and there is that wider responsibility. How, how does the um, APS become better joined up? How does it become much more of that aspiration of one enterprise where the organisation is really working as a, a single harmonious enterprise. And that was wonderful in the Thody report talking about how you become one and that's what we saw us do. Uh, yeah, when that's right. yeah. when yeah, exactly. uh, um, my colleague Rebecca had to stand up uh, for Services Australia and, and surge for, for Australian citizens, 
I had all our grads over at Services Australia and um, not only did they feel that they were making this incredible contribution uh, to Australia, but they came back to the department so energised yeah. in service delivery. Um, and we just had another request to see if any staff want to go and support another activity to surge. And I've said, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we still have our uh, key outcomes that we need to deliver, but the experience that um, we get as one APS by doing that is incredible. Um, and uh, just being able to surge to respond to other departments' uh, needs. Department of Health, my chief health officer went over there during all the planning. She went over and contributed but came back richer uh, yeah. for that experience. So that one APS, I actually think, exists um, because we are one and the secretaries are really united in talking about, well, what are we going to face next year and how do we support each other in that endeavour? Um, so I, I, I would like to think that we as a department, as small as we are, can contribute and, um, yeah, and, and make a difference for those other departments. Well, best of luck with thank that. Uh, enjoy your break and thank you for your service. Thank you. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs network and if you are interested in government communication, and let's face it, who isn't? And Liz Cosson has just told us about the importance of communication. Um, just type in GovComs into your favourite podcast player and search for the program. We now have over 250 episodes. And I'm pleased to say, interestingly enough, that the OECD in its wisdom has now started to research this fundamentally important practice, which in turn, I'm sure will draw much more attention to it. Um, for Work With Purpose, if you do see the social media promotion for this program, a like or a share, never goes astray and a review. Oh, how we love reviews. So if you do get the time to give us a review, that would be great. Thanks to the team at IPA for your ongoing support and to the Australian Public Service Commission. Thanks also to the team at Content Group who are busy producing huge amounts of content um, not only for work with purpose, but on all sorts of programming areas as well. Uh, but most importantly to you, the audience, thank you for turning up each week and thanks for your feedback in the recent IPA survey. It really does and has helped us to get a better understanding of your needs and to improve this program and the other elements of the work with purpose platform that will emerge in the new year. When it has to be said, we will all have enjoyed a good rest. I'm sure we won't know each other and when we come back, we will be ready and raring to go for another great year. Thanks again to Liz Cosson for another great program. We'll be back at the same time in a fortnight, but for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.